uh, we're going through the book of Isaiah, and uh, we only have a few weeks left going through this book, and it's, uh, it's a profound book of the Bible. And last week we were looking at Isaiah chapter 40, and we talked about how when you're in a difficult circumstance, that your circumstances can blind you to hope, where you actually become, you live in a hopeless way, where because of discouraging things that are happening around you, it's just hard to see God, and it's hard to find life. Uh, this is what happened to the people of Israel when they were taken into exile. They're in a place where they're in exile. They're under a king that is not kind towards them. They're removed from their homeland. It's a hard time. And so in that place, they lost hope. Now, what that blindness also did is they lost their calling. And this is what it says in Isaiah chapter 1. We'll put the verse up on the screen for you. Um, this is kind of a dialogue that goes back and forth. One of the complicated things about the book of Isaiah is that sometimes it's hard to tell who's talking. But this part is fairly clear. In verse 1, it says, Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. So every single one of you here was chosen before the beginning of time to reflect the beauty and glory of God. Isn't that an incredible thought? That uh, I remember growing up, my, my brother and sister are 10 and 11 years older than me. And so then there was me, like much later. And so I just assumed that I was a mistake. It was kind of like, oops. And I came along. <laughs> and so I just lived for a very long time assuming that I was an accident. I mean, I was happy to be born and all. But, uh, and then my mother told me just a few years ago, she says, no, 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 you were planned. It's like, okay, that's a little weird planning. But, but regardless of what my parents thought, God chose me to be born. And he called me be, while I was still in my mother's womb to have a destiny and a calling that's unique in my life. And the same is true for you. Now, I don't know if you go through life thinking that way. Wow, I am, a, I am chosen by God, and I have a meaningful destiny that can be filled today, and the day after that, and the day after that. But it's true about you. You're not just surviving. It's not a hopeless existence. So before I was born, the Lord called me. He said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said... I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing at all. Yeah, fine. You say that I have a great calling. Look around me. Does this look like a great calling? Does this look like some divine orchestration? And then God says again in verse 6, I will make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And then Zion, which is kind of a, a nickname for the people of Israel, Zion said again, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. So it goes back and forth. And then God says again in verse 15, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your city walls 
are ever before me. I've not forgotten that destiny. I've not forgotten the city that I gave you. None of these things have escaped my notice. Father, I pray for each person here tonight that feels forgotten and forsaken and overlooked, that you would, by your word, revive our hope, that you would show us again who you are and who we are in you. Father, we can't survive without hope. And so we need you to speak to us today, to revive us, to show us what's true. In Jesus' name, amen. So, God chose his people to be a light to the nations and to live in peace, peace and plenty. He designed us to be fruitful people. If you go through the uh, chapter 49, you'll see time and again where God says, I've called you into fruitfulness, to, to that children upon children, that you're going to be blessed. You're not overlooked at all. In fact, the people who are ruling you now, uh, they're going to be your servants, and you're going to be a blessed people. The problem is, in spite of all these promises, they acted like a disappointed servant. And they says, I've served you, you know, all my life, and this is what you have to repay me? That's not right. What this does is it sets the stage for an unnamed, despised servant who won't be discouraged by suffering, that he's going to bring salvation to the nations and blessing to his people. And uh, scholars go back and forth on who this unnamed servant is. They say that it could be King Cyrus. Uh, ultimately, we know that it's going to be Jesus. But the point is, God looks at us in our suffering and discouragement, and he says, look, I've called you to be a servant. I'm going to be more of a servant than you are. And I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to help you. I've never written you off. I've never ignored you. You're always in the center of my thoughts. Uh, I find it so comforting to know that no matter what is going on in my life, that I have a God who has not forgotten me, and I'm in the center of his mind, the center of his heart. Now, uh, I find that really comforting. I find it comforting that when I am, uh, or in this place, when the, when the people of Israel are not doing well, he says, let me do well for you. I'm going to be your strength. I'm going to be the servant that you're longing for. Let me help. Now, this is comforting except for one idea, and that is that we are the discouraged and the disobedient servant. And so God has been working with his people through uh, hundreds of years. And at the end of him refining their hearts and, and working through human history, it comes to a point yet again where they're disobedient and discouraged. And so he says, you know what? I'm going to turn my attention toward a servant who isn't going to be discouraged by their circumstances. And even though they're despised by the people around me, they're going to stay, he's going to stay faithful to me. And through him, you're going to be blessed. Now, I think about the fickleness 
of you and I. Uh, I hate to break it to you, but the church always seems to be one generation away from extinction. Like it feels like the church is just holding on. And uh, I find it challenging to contrast the commitment of the church with the commitments that we see in the world. I don't know if you've ever been on a, on a university campus, but you'll talk to students who are giving tens of thousands of dollars, uh, working long hours to make money or to, um, to do some research that they've been just longing to throw themselves into or to do humanitarian aid. You look at athletes who are uh, to the point of throwing up, are committing themselves to winning a race that no one is going to remember 10 years from now or five years from now. And I think about this. Have you thought about this? You look sometimes at the world, and the world seems to be super committed. And sometimes I look inside of my own life, or I look inside of the church, and it seems like we're always struggling to have hope and to have a vision and to, and to, and to stay on course. And you, you, you look at the business world and how, how committed they are to having, you know, one, two, five, ten-year plans. And sometimes, I don't know if it feels like this for you, but sometimes I just feel like I'm hanging on today. Now, I think that there's one way to explain that, and that is that there's something in our flesh as human beings where we're quite motivated to be selfish, but it's hard to live a life of love. It's hard to live a life that's for the glory of God and for the benefit of others. It's hard to keep that central inside of our minds. And there's something inside of the human heart that seems to kind of fall back into our greatest passion is self-fulfillment. So how does God, being realistic about the human heart, understanding that it's not natural for us to become motivated and excited about something that isn't directly about us, how does he respond to us? How does he restore our hope and help churn our focus beyond us? And maybe the Maybe the answer is a little disappointing. I don't know. But what God does is he reaffirms our calling. In verse uh, 8 and 9 of, of Psalm, uh, Isaiah 49, it says, At just the right time, I'll respond to you. I haven't forgotten you. And I know I'm not doing it right now, but at just the right time, I'm going to respond to you. And on the day of salvation, I'll help you. And I'll protect you. That sounds really good. 
And then it says, and I'm going to give you to the people as my covenant with them. So here's what he says. I know you're discouraged. And so I want you to know that in due time, what I'm going to do is you're going to be a sign that I have a covenant committed relationship with other people. I don't know. That just seems a little discouraging. Like, okay, so you want me to endure suffering. You want me to stay in a place of exile and wait for you so that I can be a blessing to others. He goes, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I'm thinking. That's exactly what I'm wanting. Um, And that through you, I'm going to reestablish the land of Israel and assign to it its own people again. And I will say to the prisoners, through you, come out in freedom. And to those in darkness, come into the light. I've got this outstanding plan for your life. And I've not forgotten it at all. And you're going to be a huge blessing to the prisoner, to the outcast, to those in darkness, to foreign lands, to even your own people. I'm going to be, you're going to be a blessing. And my promise of salvation to you is that I have not forgotten the call that I've given to you to be a servant. I just think this is fascinating. So what I'd like you to do, if you've been a Christian, uh, you probably prayed a prayer at some point in time, and that would mark the moment that you became a Christian. And your prayer would be something like this. um, Lord Jesus, I thank you for dying for my sins and for giving me new life. And I'm going to follow you now uh, because I'm so grateful for this gift of forgiveness. And when you look at this passage, that what this servant comes to do is to restore to us not just the forgiveness of sins. That's not really mentioned in this passage. What's restored to us is our original calling. Um, Jumping forward into the New Testament, this is how salvation is described in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And most people read that is by forgiveness, by mercy that you've been saved through faith. I don't think that that's what the word grace means here. I think it means uh, my empowering presence has saved you. And then listen to what it saved you into. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So, guys, I've got this really, really good news. I know you're discouraged. I know that life doesn't seem to be adding up to much, but I'm going to save you. I'm going to restore to you the good works that God prepared in advance for you to do. Don't worry. You still get to do those good works. It's still going to be great. That's salvation in this context. Our hope as Christians is to serve alongside our Savior. That we were called to be a servant. We didn't succeed. So he says, I'm going to raise up a new servant. 
And what this servant is going to do is, is perform a miracle and save you in such a way that's going to recommission you into your plans and the, the plans and purposes that I've had for you. Now, I, man, this is... So when we look at, uh, at our life purpose, and when I talk to people about their life purpose, what is typically described is I want a good job. Uh, most of the time, people want to get married and have 1.5 or 2.5 kids. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to find a place where I can own a home. And, uh, and then I want to retire preferably early. And then I would like to, to buy a, an, an RV. And I'm going to travel around. And I'm going to camp in places. And I'm going to die. And then that's going to be a really, really fulfilling life. That's my plan. And God says, uh, uh, before you were formed in your mother's womb, I had servant work for you to do. It's really great. Uh, you're going to be serving me your whole life long. I don't know whether you're going to have a house. I don't, I don't, your job, some of you, you'll need work. But I don't know if it's going to be great work. I don't know if it's going to be self-fulfilling work. But you'll work, don't worry. And then sometimes... I'm going to send you into really desperate places that are going to feel really hopeless. But don't worry, you'll still be able to be a servant. That's the good news. What kind of sales job is this? We've been talking in our church a lot about glory and honor and God lifting off our shame. We've been talking a lot about this. And uh, the best example that I can come up with is, uh, <clears throat> have you had somebody ever talk to you and you ask them what they do and they, they describe what they do, but what they mostly describe is the company they work for. Because the truth of the matter is, they do really boring work all day long. But they're doing that really boring work for a really cool company. And they go, oh, you know, you work for Microsoft, or you work for Apple, or I don't know. It's, oh, wow, that's cool. What they aren't saying is they sit in front of a desk all day long and crunch numbers. And hand it off and get more numbers. To work through. They don't say that part, but they say, yeah, I work for Microsoft. Yeah, I work for Apple. And somehow, when you have a cool company that you're working for, your super mundane work became really cool. 
because of who you're working for. So, I think that wouldn't it be super cool to work for God? <laughs> who do you work for? God. <laughs> Creator of the universe. You know, he's my, uh, you know, he's the, what, what do they call that? The reporting. He's the guy I report to. Wow. You work for God? Yeah, I work for God. That's who I work for. Wow, you're cool. I don't work for God. I work for me. I work for this. Com- I'm just trying to make do. Yeah, I know. I feel bad for you. I work for God. That's who I work for. You see, wouldn't that make your life amazing? And that what would look like meaningless work is the building of a kingdom that is going to rule the world one day. And you're part of that. I'm in the hospitality industry. I'm in, I'm in medicine. I'm in accounting. But what I'm doing is you don't know what I'm really doing when I'm there. You don't know that. I was talking to a, to a young man in Calgary this morning, and uh, he works in the oil industry. And that's not something that you necessarily want to brag about. You know, I'm using up all, you know, <laughs> resources in the world. And uh, you, ne- you don't really, but he, says, but he says, Greg, you know what I'm thinking about mostly? He says, I'm thinking about how to bring the kingdom of God into my workplace. That's what I'm thinking about. And so I work really hard. I put in long hours. But he says, I'm a representative of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords in my workplace. That's what I do for a living. He says, they think I'm just running numbers. I'm not just running numbers. I've been commissioned by my Heavenly Father to do eternally valuable work. So when God says that he saves us, What he's saying is, I am redeeming you out of a meaningless existence of working for yourself, of just making ends meet, of trying to pay the bills, of just a life of stuff. I want to save you out of that and give you a servant role in my kingdom. This is what is said about Jesus in Matthew 20. He says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. One of the most invigorating experiences of my life is doing things that no one else knows about, but I know that heaven and earth moved because of what I participated in. I remember, you're going to think this is a, a, silly, a silly example, but I, uh, uh, so Franklin Graham came to town, if you didn't notice, a few, a few weeks ago, and 
thousands of people responded. It was amazing. Well, his father, Billy Graham, who's probably one of the most, uh, uh, not, just, not just famous, but the most significant evangelist of, uh, of this last century, uh, he came to Vancouver a couple decades ago. And uh, I don't know if you know this. I don't want to, you know, drop names or whatever. But, uh, but I built the stand that Billy Graham's pulpit was on. I know, I know. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not trying to brag. But um, he's a tall guy, and so th the pulpit that they had for him was too short. And so they needed to raise it up about that far. And <laughs> I built that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, me and Billy, <laughs> we go back a long ways. And if it wasn't for me, uh, he couldn't have preached the word of God because he couldn't have seen it because it was too low down. So pretty much I was preaching to the millions of people and say, pretty much, it's, it's pretty much the same thing, pretty much. <laughs> I take autographs later. Um, but do you know, I remember that. I remember building the base for Billy Graham's pulpit. I remember that. That was, I was in my early 20s. So that's almost 30 years ago. I remember doing that. And uh, that I got to serve in the advancement of God's kingdom. None of you, I know you don't care. None of you care. I care about that. I was a servant to the advancement of the gospel. And it means something to me. And I've preached lots of sermons in front of people that I don't remember. I remember building a base for Billy Graham's pulpit. You know why? Because it was Billy Graham. And Billy Graham was serving Jesus. And Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. And I got to be part of that. My friends, what we're battling against in our culture is the pursuit of true honor. And we've settled for self-fulfillment instead of honoring the name of our king and being a servant in his kingdom. We've settled, hear me now, we've settled for self-fulfillment. So instead of saying, yeah, not forget that I work for Apple or Microsoft. No, I work for God. And we've settled for, you know, I have dreams and visions inside of me, and uh, I'm fulfilling those right now. No one cares. Who are you working for again? You know, I'm self-employed and working for me. No one cares. Let's work for God and be a servant in his kingdom. Okay, we're almost done. So, uh, how do we regain hope? 
let's say that you and I are in a discouraging place. I go through discouraging times every week and most every day, all right? How do we get out of discouraging times? It's not with new thoughts or new feelings. It's with new actions. I remember uh, my mentor saying to me a long time ago, uh, psychologist, he says, you know how you get somebody out of depression? What you do, if they're depressed, what you do is you encourage them, it has to be their choice, not yours, but you encourage them to walk out of their house, lock the door behind them, because you're usually paranoid, lock the door behind them and go across the street and serve somebody. It's how you get someone out of depression. Have you heard that before? No, it's not taught. What's taught is the way that you get out of depression is you get better thoughts. And then those thoughts are going to lead to better feelings. And then when you have better feelings, you're going to have better results. That's not true. Better thoughts, don't get me wrong, better thoughts and feelings are a great thing. But do you know what they always need to lead to? Better actions. And the reason why you and I would be discouraged, you and I would have lost hope and not seen the glory that God has called us to live in is because we've not committed to doing the actions that God has told us to do. So, are you discouraged by a lack of fruit in your life, in your marriage, in reaching out to your friends, in your career? Were you, would you, do you expect to have been farther ahead by now? What God encourages us to do with a lack of fruit is to plant more seeds. And so what he says is, you're discouraged? You're in a difficult time? This is the perfect time to sow more seeds. This is the perfect time. What is that uh, saying in real estate that you, uh, you, you know, buy high? Or, no, you buy low and you sell high, right? You can tell I'm really into that stuff. Um, and the, what's the best time to invest in the market? Come on, you guys are better at this than me. What's the best time to invest in the market? When it's doing poorly. So the best time to invest in the kingdom of God and to be about the work that God has given you to do is when it's most discouraging and the least is going on. That's the best time to invest in the kingdom of God. You go, wow, nothing is going on in Vancouver. What an ideal time. I was building my own kingdom. What a waste of time. I need to be investing right now in the kingdom of God. Stocks are low in the kingdom. I, this is my time to invest in the kingdom because I know where, it's, where the trajectory is going. And this is the right time for me to invest. If your marriage isn't doing well right now, it's the perfect time to invest faith and action in your marriage. If your kids aren't doing well, don't get discouraged. This is the best time to invest in their life. When they're doing well, they're going to ignore you. Right now, when they're discouraged, that's when they're going to listen to you. Your career isn't doing well? Do faith-filled actions 
and show yourself to be a Christian in your workplace. I love the prophetic word that God gave to Sajit at the beginning of our at the beginning of this year. And what it was was that God wants to birth new life in this community. But it's like an egg that needs to be hatched. And the only way that an egg gets hatched is if the chick picks away at the shell and breaks free. The only way that you and I are going to move into the calling and destiny that God has on our life is if we trust in God and do the work in faith of sowing seeds. We've been talking in our church a lot about D groups. And you can have really good thoughts and really good feelings about D groups. But unless you talk, start talking to your friends, nothing's going to change. And so if not much is going on, now is the moment to be sowing seeds even more. Let me just conclude with this. I remember when my, uh, my uh, as a teenager, my father is sick with multiple sclerosis. Uh, I would spend, the only time I would see him is if I visited him in the hospital. He lived in the hospital for the last uh, three or so years of his life. And so I'm a teenager, and the world around me is saying, you have a wasted life. You, uh, you have to work in the family business because your dad is sick. And when you're not working in the business, you're visiting him in the hospital. They're going to be giving you communion because we're going to be receiving that in just a moment. And uh, I remember feeling resentful about the life that God had given me. I remember going, God... Why is it that all my friends get to go out playing and doing whatever they want? And why is it that I'm cutting lawns and, and building things and visiting my father in the hospital? Why am I doing this? And I remember being angry as a teenager. And do you know what got me out of my anger? I sowed into the family business. And I served my family through a time when I was angry and discouraged and there wasn't much going on. The way that God took me out of a difficult moment was not to escape into an unrealistic reality, but to bring me to serve in the darkest, most difficult places that I was experiencing at that point in my life. What you're going to be holding in your hands in just a moment is a symbol, firstly, of the darkest time of Christ's life, where he was betrayed by those who were closest to him. He was going to be tortured and crucified. And in the darkest, most servant-hearted moment of his life, he achieved salvation for us. And that salvation is the restoration of our calling to be a servant like he was. Worship team, could you please come up? In verse 23, it says, Those who trust in me will never be put to shame. 
if you trust in God and you are about his business, you will never be put to shame. And so my prayer is that as we look at the path of hope, that hope is through doing servant-hearted things in the darkest places. And as we do, we find ourselves participating in the coming of the kingdom of God. Let me pray for us. Those of you who are receiving elements, just pray with your eyes open. Father, I thank you that your salvation for sure is about the forgiveness of sins. But your salvation is also about the restoration of our calling. It's about giving back to us the privilege of serving in the kingdom of God. And Father, would you let that motivation invigorate us to action again. Father, don't let us be passive in our salvation, but let us receive the work of your servant Jesus. Let us receive what he bought and paid for us, a grace that would enable us to fulfill the good works that he prepared in advance for us to do. I thank you that what we hold in our hands right now is a pledge of a promise that there is no work too meaningful, no situation too discouraging to be useless because it's all redeemed by the grace of God flowing through our hands as we are about his business. Work these things in our heart, I pray. First Corinthians chapter 11, it says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, in his darkest moment, in the moment before his death for humanity, he took bread, and he said, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What we're remembering right now is the servanthood of the Lord Jesus, who was obedient to death, even death on a cross. He was obedient to his Father. And the depth of his servanthood achieved for us eternal salvation. And so in taking this communion, you identify yourself with the servant Jesus. And you are absorbed into his servanthood as you take up your own cross and follow him. If this is what you want, if this is what you are committing to do, to be a servant of the Lord Jesus through his mercy and grace, then please, this is Christ's body, sorry, broke for you. Take and eat. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, I thank you that as we commit to walking in the truth and life of the Lord Jesus, we know that we'll fail. But we thank you that your blood covers our sin, restores us to relationship, keeps us close to you. And so we thank you that even as we are going, you're realistic. And so you've come to forgive and to reconcile and to provide a way into relationship with you. So this is Christ's blood shed for you. Take and drink. Let's stand and worship God together for this life that he has given us through Jesus Christ.